we're going to be continuing our series throughout David's life. We've been looking at David, specifically at how he's going through this period of testing and trials um, before he eventually becomes king. So it's my great privilege for us to continue that story today. But before I do, let's just open in prayer. Um, Lord, we gather here today um, not just to sing some songs, not to just go through the motions, not to just listen to someone talk. We come here to encounter and meet with you. We sing because we pray together communally and we meet you through the words that we sing. And now as we engage with your words, your scripture, God, would you make it come alive to us? Would we, would we be able to hear the heartbeat of Jesus through these pages? Would we be able to sense the whisperings and the leadings of the Spirit calling out to us? Heavenly Father, would you reveal who you are through these texts? Amen. Amen. All right, so like I said, we're going through this period of testing and trial for David. And all of us will eventually go through a period of testing. And for me in particular, I feel like God's most, one of God's most testing periods in my life is when I'm behind the wheel of a car. Um, transport and travel and traffic is a moment where God seems to work on my inner character. You guys probably, I'm a, you know, I'm a pastor, so you guys probably all think I'm a really good Christian. That's because none of you have been in the car with me during traffic yet. Um, now, I'm sure I'm the only one who's like that. You guys are all really holy, and you only speak blessings to the people who cut you off. Um, but I have to work on it. I've got some issues, you know, to, to work through. And one of the things that often happens, and it may happen to you too, is there's this, there's this scenario, right? You're trying to get to work, or you're trying to get to a meeting, or you're trying to pick your kid up from school, and you're in a rush because you've always left late, um, because you know that if traffic is perfect, you can get there in exactly 14 minutes. And so you think, I'll have enough time to do it. And then what happens is you get in traffic, and then there's this long line of cars, and you see this one car trying to break in. And you're torn, right? Your Christ-likeness and your sinful nature are at war within you because you see that car and you think the Christ-like thing to do would be to let them in, you know? They've probably been waiting there for an hour, but we all know that you don't want to let that car in. They should, they should have gone around another route, and that's their fault that that's where they are. And that happens to me every time. I see these cars, and I'm like, oh, I don't want to do it. But sometimes, not all the time, sometimes the, uh, the, the Christ nature within me wins out, and I'm gracious, you know? So I flash my lights, and, and I'll let this other car through, and I feel really good because I've done the right thing, right? You guys probably all feel really good until... And this is statistically true, 99% of that time, the car you let in is always the slow driver. Always. Or it's the car who then is more Christ-like than you and lets in 15 other cars ahead of them. And you're sitting there before you were like, I am so holy, take my bountiful blessings of space car. And then that car lets in 13 cars and you're like, you are evil. You need to repent and rethink your life. And you, you end up working through all these things because deep down within us, there is this idea that we come to, which is if we do the right thing, then hopefully something good will happen. If I let in this car, then, you know, God will help me and then I'll get to work in time and I'll be a good Christian and everything will be right. But often it doesn't work that way. You do the right thing, you let that car into the traffic, and then they let in 15 other cars. And they never indicate which way they're turning. And, they, and when the lane splits, they do that infuriating thing where they sit right in the middle so you can't go on either side of them. You know, and you get so angry because often you do the good thing and you expect to be rewarded for it. And as we pick up on David's life, that's exactly the situation that he was in. If you remember last week, Craig talked about this amazing, amazing encounter where David had this um, opportunity where he could have killed Saul. They were in a cave. Saul didn't know he was there. 
David could have snuck up behind him, killed him, and taken the kingship by force. He could have had everything he wanted by taking it from Saul in that moment. And those two natures warred within him, and fortunately the better side won, and he said, no, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed, and he let Saul go. And then him and Saul had this amazing encounter where they talk to each other, and Saul repents, and then David goes free, and David did the right thing. But where we pick up in the story, even though David did the right thing, his period of testing isn't over, and in fact, it's about to get more difficult. So we pick up in Samuel, we'll be in 1 Samuel chapter 25. If you guys have your Bibles, feel free to grab those and follow along. It's going to be, we're going to be working through that chapter. If not, we'll have the verses up there for you to follow along with. That's 1 Samuel 25. So in verse 1, we pick up the stories. David's just let Saul go. They have this amazing encounter where Saul forgives him, and they go their separate ways. And then this happens. Now Samuel died. And all of Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his home in Ramah. And David moved down into the desert of Paran. Now, it's easy to see this as just an introductory verse, but this verse carries so much meaning. Samuel had died. You know, in the past, whenever David had run into difficulty, whenever Saul had gotten too much, who did David run to? He ran to Samuel. Because Samuel was his one advocate. Samuel was the one who anointed him and knew God's call, God's plan, God's purpose for him. So in Samuel, he had an ally, and his one remaining ally had just died, and he really was alone. And so David flees into the desert. Now, David's already been in the wilderness, but now he moves into an even tougher, tougher area in the desert of Paran, where there's no food, there's very little water, and David now has five, six hundred mouths to feed, people to take care of, and supplies are running low and low and low. And can you imagine David's mindset? He just did the right thing. He just got back on good terms with Saul. You must have thought, okay, now we can get back to life as normal. Maybe I can head back to Israel, and I can get back with my wife, and I can get back to just being a general in Saul's army. Maybe I can come back to who I was Maybe God will bless me for doing the right thing. Instead, it went the opposite direction, and David's period of testing got worse. And so now he's alone in a desert with rapidly dwindling resources, rapidly dwindling rations, and you've got all these people. And the people with David weren't the nicest of people. If you remember, they were the discontent, um, I believe Craig labeled them the ratbags of Israel. And he's got all these ratbags who are now angry because David was supposed to do something good and now they're all starving in the desert. Can you see the pressure building for David and he has to do something. So now David remembers there's this man named Nabal. Nabal lives at Carmel in an area called Hebron. And Nabal is described as incredibly wealthy. Nabal has a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which means he has to have even hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people to look after that flock. And in the area, he would have been one of the clan leaders of the Calebite clan, which is a, a subset of the wider tribe of Judah. So in this uh, influential tribe, Nabal is the leader of this clan with all of this wealth, all these resources. And David remembers a while back when his army was camped around Nabal, his army protected Nabal's resources. So his army camped around the sheep and the goats, and they kept them safe. That entire time, the army, even though it was filled with rat bags, none of them took a sheep for themselves. 
None of them abused one of the shepherders. None of of them took anything they shouldn't. And in fact, they protected Nabal's um, resources from other like raiding parties and other um, people who were going to try and take things by force. And so David had known in the past, he'd had a good relationship with Nabal and he'd taken care of him. And now in his time of great need, he thought maybe Nabal can help us. Maybe he'd be able to do something. So David sends some messengers out. And they come, and they come to Nabal, and they come to his estate, and they say, Nabal, and they're very respectful, and they're very kind. They say, Nabal, look, you are a wealthy and wise man, and I can see you're shearing your sheep. You're preparing your sheep for a big feast where you celebrate the goodness of God to you over the past year. Do you remember your son David when we camped around you a while ago, and we kept everything safe for you? We watched, over, we watched over you and nothing bad happened to you while we were with you. Nabal, do you remember your son David? Would you remember him now when you've got all this plenty and you're preparing for a feast? Would you have anything you could spare? A few lambs, some water, some grain, anything you can spare to help out David in this time of need. And how does Nabal respond? Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from the masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered from my shears and give it to the men coming from who knows where? Now, already with Nabal, we have a clue that he's not necessarily the nicest guy in the character as his name Nabal literally means fool. Um, so my, my thinking is that later on, whoever wrote the story of Samuel knew David and knew the story of Nabal and was like, what's his name? His name's Fool. Write that down. So we already know Nabal's not the greatest of guys. And so Nabal responds to David with a no, but it's more than just a no. It's, it's this insult and rejection. First, he names David's family. Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? It's not because Nabal didn't know. If you remember a while ago, David was famous all throughout the land. They had songs saying, David's killed his tens of thousands and Saul's only killed his thousands. David was the savior of the nation when Goliath was at at their doorstep. He knew who David was, but David had gone through some rough periods and all of David's family of Jesse had come to join him in the wilderness. So where they previously had this place of power, place of influence and place of wealth, they were now poor and needy in the desert. And Nabal's picking up on that. Who is this David? Son of Jesse? What family is Jesse? Certainly not a powerful family. I heard you were poor. I heard you were needy. Who are you? And then going beyond insulting his family, he insults David's character, saying many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. He bought into this this story that was around that Saul was trying to spread around David that David was a rebel, a fugitive trying to usurp Saul's authority and take the kingship by force. Even though we know from the story David had done nothing of the like, Nabal buys into it and says, David, who are you? You're not a general. You're not God's anointed. You're not anyone good. You're a fugitive and a rebel and a blight upon the nation of Israel. You're just a warlord trying to get his way. It's this huge Massive, massive insult to David's face. And so Nabal tells David's servants, go back and tell David that. So the servants go back. I'd be terrified to deliver that message. 
And they go back to David and they respond and they say everything that Nabal said. And now here's this really influential moment for David. Just like when David was at the back of the cave deciding what do I do about Saul, he comes to one of those moments again. The pressure has built. He's got hungry mouths to feed. He's a fugitive. He's living in the desert. He's done everything good, but God's not seeming to come through for him and he has another choice. What does he do with this rejection now that their last line of hope is gone? David said, it's been useless. All my watching after this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He's paid me back evil for good. And may God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave one male alive of all who belong to him. David is filled with this blind rage and makes a vow to kill every last one of Nabal's household. And it's not like he's just going to go kill Nabal. He rallies 400 of his troops, mounts them on horses, puts swords on their side, and says, by the end of the night, every one of their family will be dead in a blind rage. Interesting how David doesn't sound like the David we know anymore. He's beginning to sound a lot more like Saul. And so David gets his war war party and goes off to attack Nabal. Now, before I came here, I've mentioned this a few times, I was a musician um, in, in England for three years. I was part of a band, and we played shows all over the country. And uh, my job within the band is I had to look after transport, which is probably not great. Now you know how much uh, Jesus already tests me when I'm driving, but it was my job in the band to look after that. And so when the band had all these other things, I had to make sure we had a van to get us and our gear to where we needed to go. And we were broke, like dirt, dirt, dirt poor, like any good musician should be. And um, we had no money to get anywhere, and so it became increasingly difficult. I kept borrowing, asking for favors, borrowing vans, and as time went on, it became more and more difficult for me to find drivers or a van to get us to different places because we couldn't afford one. And petrol in the UK is about as expensive as your own blood. So to try and afford to travel across the country was getting really difficult, and I felt that pressure in a big way. So there was this one gig we had to get to down in the southwest of the country. And I'd managed to get a hold of a van, and this van had heaps of cargo space so it could fit all of our gear, but the problem was this van only had three seats. But there were five of us who needed to get down to the gig. And I could not, for the life of me, find another form of transport. I couldn't find another way that would be cost-effective to get us there. And so as the pressure built and everyone was looking at me to find a way, I thought, oh, I know what I can do. I've got a shortcut that we can use to make this happen. What I thought is we'll put three people in the front, we'll load the gear, and then we'll take a couch and just place it in the boot of the van and then have two of our musicians sit in the back. Now, clearly this is a terrible idea, but under the pressure, I kept on thinking, this is the only way it's going to work. People are looking at me to make it happen. I've got to find a way to get there. We're going to do it. So this is what we do. It's this big windowless van, and we pack it full of gear. And when I say pack it full of gear, I literally mean pack it full of gear. It was a big old Ford Transit, and we literally had a wall a wall of gear from like the floor to the top of the ceiling was just encased in this wall of speakers 
amplifiers, guitar cases, uh, microphone stands, which happen to look a lot like javelins, if you're afraid of them. And they're all precariously packed in this big wall. And then we take this two-seater couch and put it right behind it and then say, all right, we're good to go. So we grabbed two of our musicians, uh, fortunately not me, I sat in the front because I organized this. I grabbed our drummer and our bassist, shoved them into the back, closed the door, and they're sitting in the dark for this whole trip because there's no windows, so it's pitch black, and they're sitting in this moving van with this wall of death, like right, <laughs> right in front of them. And I thought, oh, this is bad. We won't do this again, but I just need to make it work just this one time. And we just need to get there, go to this gig, and we'll never do this again, right? You can see how I'm beginning to rationalize it in my mind, thinking it's okay. And as we're driving along the motorway, driving, we're all having a good time, we're going at about 120 k's an hour on the motorway, on the inside lane, right near the median with opposing traffic on the other side of the motorway coming, and at 120 k, we blow a tire in the back. At which point, the van starts tilting and swerving and moving towards this median. And in the back, I just hear screams, like literally screams for their life from our drummer, who's sitting there and suddenly hears this roar from the wheel well, which he's right next to. And this wall of gear that we thought was so well packed begins to avalanche upon them. But it's pitch black, so they can't see anything. So they're just getting hit by guitar stands. A mic stand hits someone in the chest. A speaker falls down. And it all like collapses on them as they're like trying to hold on there. And we managed to like, it swerves toward the median and our driver, who's amazing, and by the grace of God, managed to get control of this van and bring it over to the side of the road and stop. And we thought, almost died, but we thought we still have to get there, and we're already stuck in the situation, so what do you do? So we, they get out, the two guys get out of the back of the van, because they are genuinely terrified for their lives, and they stand out there just happy to be in some fresh air, and we go through, proceed to, you know, fix and replace the tire on the van. But the problem was, as we were sitting there, it looked really sketchy to everyone else, because there are five guys standing outside of a three-seater van on the side of the road, and then, as we are, you know, changing the tire, this cop car we see begin to approach us, at which point we panic, because there's five of us in a three-seater van, and we're about to get done by British cops, and my drummer, who's from Mexico, was afraid they were going to throw him in jail because he was brown, and, like, everything just went crazy. And so the only thing we thought we could do is, we l I looked at the two of them, and I was like, run into the bushes! And so the drummer and the bassist looked at each other and ran into the bushes. And they went and hid like three meters away as these cops <laughs> pulled up. And they're sitting there literally like this, like looking through the branches, trying to keep their mouths shut. And these cops come and check on us. And obviously, we're terrified. We probably looked like we were carrying meth or something, because they're like, what are you guys doing? Going to a gig, going to a gig, tire broke, we're okay. You know? And so these cops, I mean, they were really nice, wonderful people, and so they helped us get our tires sorted, and then helped us get back on the road, at which point we said, okay, we're just gonna make a few calls. You guys, you guys go on ahead. And we get in our car and drive a little bit, so the cop thinks we're going off, and then we stop so our, our drummer and bassist can get out of the bushes, come around and jump back into the van, and we drive on the west, rest of the way to our gig. <clears throat> and we get there, but as we got there, we realized something had gone incredibly incredibly wrong. Under increasing pressure, 
I kept on thinking, I've got to make it happen. I've got to make it happen. So I'll just take this bad shortcut. I'll just do this one quick little thing that will make it work. But the problem was is that it was all messed up. Our whole purpose as a band was to try and play in different venues, different clubs, different bars, and help get to know people. And by getting to know them and sharing our lives with them, they would get to encounter the love of God, and hopefully that would transform their lives. But by doing this, we were no longer that band anymore. Because if we were that band, we wouldn't have risked the lives and security of our friends and other people on the road just so we could go play a show. When we did that, it became way much more about our pride and our own sense of self-worth than what God had called us to do. And by taking these bad shortcuts and forcing our own way, we missed the purpose of who God had called us to be. And that's the same thing, the same pressure that David encounters now. See, the whole time that we read about David's story, you've got this contrast between David and Saul. Saul behaves like this, relies on military power, acts in a blind rage, and seeks to gain his power by killing people. And David is always presented as this different kind of leader, someone who God chose to lead the nation differently. But under increasing pressure, with mouths to feed and no option, you see David cave. And when David straps his sword to his side and takes this war party out to go kill Nabal, to go kill his family, David goes from being God's anointed king to becoming the very warlord that Saul wanted to make him out to be. Because there's no doubt that David would have won. All his army would have come and swept through Nabal's estate in the night, would have killed all of the men, the leaders, the soldiers, as they slept, and all of Nabal's wealth and estate would have passed on to David. He would have claimed it for himself. The land would have been his, and he would have established himself as a local leader with resources and a base of operations. But he also would have become a warlord who was willing to slaughter his own people for personal gain. These bad shortcuts that we take can often change the nature of who God has called us to be because we think we got to make it happen our way. So what happens with David? David's leading a war party to go slaughter a group of people. Nabal is at his house feasting, thinking he got the better of the exchange and is literally getting himself drunk on wine and on food and is sitting there like, I'm the best. And fortunately, we encounter one character who's actually got her head screwed on straight. In the midst of these two men who were clouded with pride and anger, there's one woman who God uses to change the course of the story and David's life forever. We encounter Abigail. Abigail was Nabal's wife. She's described as intelligent and beautiful in that order. And what happens is one of Nabal's servants heard Nabal's reply to David and thought, uh-oh, this is gonna end badly. Nabal's a fool and he's basically condemned us all to death. David's not gonna take kindly to this. So the servant runs to Abigail and tells Abigail everything that happened. Abigail, you've got to listen. David's servants came and they needed help and they're really good people. They looked after us in the past and nothing went wrong as long as they were looking out for us. And David's in a pinch now and he asked Nabal for help. He asked him for a favor to repay some of the kindness David did us in the past. And Nabal spat in his face. He insulted his family. He insulted his calling and rejected David's offer. And now I'm pretty sure David is going to come back with a vengeance. And Abigail, in this amazing way, sweeps into action. 
where both of these men are responding and acting out of pride, she moves forward with intelligence and wisdom and manages to outsmart both of these men at the same time. So what does Abigail do? Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dressed sheep, five seers of roasted grain, 100 cakes of raisins, 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them all onto donkeys. Then she told her servants, go on ahead, I'll follow you. But she didn't tell her husband, Nabal. What's so clever about this is she gets around both men's blind rage and pride. She gets around Nabal's because she told Nabal, Nabal would have done nothing about it, and by the end of the night, that entire household would have been dead. So instead, she keeps it from him and says, look, this is what you need to do, get it done. But also by loading all these gifts and sending them to David on ahead of her, she's also outsmarting David, who is blinded by rage and fear because this pressure has built too much and he's caved and he's snapped. So what she does is by getting these donkeys to him, before David sees anyone representing Nabal's household, he receives all of these gifts. The food that he needs to feed his men arrives. The water that they need to drink arrives. Everything, the supplies that they need to make it through the harsh life on the desert arrives. And this pressure that's pushed him into a ridiculous situation is eased. And then Abigail appears. Once David's temper has receded. And it's amazing. She comes up to him. And little fun fact, Abigail's speech here is the longest recorded speech of any woman in the Old Testament. And it's because the author is giving her heaps of space to speak because her words are the ones that change the situation. She arrives and she gets off her donkey and she bows low. She gets on the ground and she says, David, 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 have mercy. My husband is like his name. He's a fool. Poor woman having to apologize for her husband again. Um, fortunately, my wife's never had to do that for me. <laughs> I can hear about that one later. Um, she apologizes and says, Nabal, he's a fool. I wasn't there when your servants arrived, David. If I were there, you would have had everything you need from the get-go. Please forgive us. It's my fault. And then she goes one step further, though, and she says, it's my fault. Forgive us. But David, stop this path you are on. Don't bring guilt upon yourself. Don't cause bloodshed and take men's lives this night. And how she does it is so significant, I want us to read it because it's amazing and beautiful. She says, please forgive your servant's presumption, talking about herself. But the Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord, his David, because you fight the Lord's battles, and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. And even though someone's pursuing you to take your life the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as far from the, from the pocket of a sling. And when the Lord has fulfilled from my Lord every good thing he promised concerning him and has appointed him ruler over Israel, my Lord David will not have on his conscience the staggering burden, burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. And when the Lord, your God, has brought my Lord's success, remember me, your servant. What's amazing is that in Abigail's speech, again, she's this rare character 
And you'll find this theme throughout Samuel over and over again. The ones who've got it together are the ones who are able to bring this discussion back into the context of God. She says, David, you, in, under pressure, you're responding with anger and pride and fear, but don't you remember who God is? What God has promised to you? The Lord has promised to make your name a dynasty. God has promised you to work into kingship. And because he's promised that, your life is bound in the land of the living. He's not going to let you die because he has promised things through you. And when you've responded in fear, David, you forgot who God was. And by forgetting who God was and who God has called you to be, you are now beginning to act like someone who God hasn't called you to be. You are becoming a different person than the one God has called you to be. Because as soon as David took up that sword and as soon as he would have killed that first man, David would have gone from being a man after God's own heart, anointed and chosen to be the leader of Israel, to becoming a king just like Saul. He would have been a local warlord, warlord throwing his weight around, trying to win his own battles. David was becoming the very person Saul wanted him to be, the very person Nabal accused him of, but Abigail said, that's not who you are. And that's not who God is making you to be. But if you're taking these shortcuts, if you're trying to force it by your own strength and make it happen in your way, and shortcut God's process for your life, God's period of testing for you, then you are missing the point. And you won't be the person who God has called you to be. Now, I won't get into it too long, but it's worth just sitting with Abigail and realizing the weight of her words. If it were not for Abigail, David would have slaughtered all those people. And then in slaughtering all of those people, David would have then had no hesitations about killing Saul. If he's already, if he's spled, sped, spled, spilt blood here, he'll spill it again. And David, it would have likely led to this huge civil war between David and Saul, and the bloodshed would have been enormous, and it's very unlikely that David would have been the king and leader that we know of him as today if it weren't for this one wise woman who God chose to use. She's incredible. And it's just worth noting the ability of what God can do through a woman who's able to listen to him. She represented her family, defended her kin, rebuked a king, and saved a nation from war through one woman that God used. I just think it's worth mentioning that. So the big thing that, Ab that Abigail told to David was don't shortcut the journey. Don't bypass it. Don't try to make it happen in another way. And now David, as much as throughout the story, he's been reacting like a moron. He's been acting like Saul. David finally returns to the David that we know from the other scriptures. And unlike Saul, who when he's critiqued, ends up throwing a spear at them, David listens. And he responds to Abigail saying, thank God for you. For you have saved me from sinning. You saved me from the burden I would have to bear, the reputation I would have to live with for the rest of my life, and it weren't for you, I'd be a different person. So David relents and returns back to the desert with his supplies. And Abigail says, remember me on that day. Remember me, David. 
probably because she's tied to a sinking ship like Nabal. Um, so Abigail returns home. Nabal is drunk, lying in his parlor, thinking he's the man. So she waits until morning once he's sobered up. And in the morning, she tells him everything that happened. Tells him how close he came to death and how he put his entire family and household lives in jeopardy because of his pride. And Nabal suffers a stroke. And for 10 days, he's unconscious before he passes away. And all the resources, all the wealth, all the land, now pass to Abigail. And what happens? Abigail reaches out to David. David reaches out to Abigail. and Abigail ends up becoming David's wife. And so everything that Nabal had that David was ready to take by force, to shove his way into, even to sin in order to attain, ended up coming to him, but by a process by which he could live with. God brought it to him. And this area is so significant for David later on. This area of Hebron, where Nabal and his estate lived, um, became one of the key holding places in fortified cities for David. And when he's eventually anointed as king over Israel, he's anointed here in Hebron. By marrying into the Calebite family, he's built really good alliances with a key clan within the tribe of Judah. And now that tribe of Judah ends up becoming his biggest supporting partner in the future in his claim for kingship in the way God brings it about. It was such a significant moment, but had he done it himself, it would have fallen apart. But in trusting in God and listening to this wise woman, it happened in the way God wanted it to happen. So that he could be free from the guilt he was ready to bring on himself. So what does that mean for you and me? We are, none of us are in the line to become king. At least I I don't think so. If someone is, I would love to meet you for tea and coffee afterwards. Be a great person to get to know. But most of us aren't in line for kingship. Most of us aren't in line to be the prime minister. Most of us have a very different goal and a very different stage in life. What does this lesson have to mean for us? The truth is, even though we may not be like David and we may not be lined up for kingship, each and every one of us is involved in a kingdom. In Christ's life, death, and resurrection, he inaugurated a new kingdom here on earth called the kingdom of heaven. And it's a new way of being. It's a new way of living. It's a new way of acting. It's a way in which the poor and downtrodden have people come around them and help them up. It's a kingdom where you don't get to just kill to take what you want. It's a kingdom where the strong don't rule over the weak, but the weak are equal with the strong because everyone is equal under the eyes of God. It's a new kingdom where trust, honesty, and love become the main currency rather than greed, power, and corruption. It's this new kingdom that started in Israel and is spreading to all over the world, and it's infecting all these different areas of society. The kingdom of God is spreading in teaching spheres. The kingdom of God is spreading in healthcare. The kingdom of God is spreading in sciences. The kingdom of God is spreading in education. The kingdom of God is spreading into our justice system, into our lawmakers. The kingdom of God is working its way around the whole world, and one day when Christ returns, it will be complete. And there will be no more tears. There will be no more sadness. A whole new world and a whole new way of being is happening. It's inaugurated by Christ, and it's continuing now, and you and I are a part of that. We are called to participate in this kingdom of 
God. But because you and I are participating with Jesus and the Holy Spirit in spreading this kingdom all across the earth, it means how we arrive to that kingdom matters. How we act, how we behave, how we relate ourselves to the areas that we are in matters incredibly. If we take shortcuts, if we try to force our way onto things, if we take shortcuts that go against the vein of who God has called us to be, it means we're compromising the message God has called us to move through. And we're shortcutting the process of God changing us into the people he wants us to become. And church history, unfortunately, is littered with people who tried to take shortcuts to try and make it happen. The Crusades are one of the biggest blights in the history of Christianity because Christians kept on thinking, we need to spread the kingdom of God, we need to make it happen, and we're going to do it our way, so let's gather up the troops, and let's bring in the kingdom of God forcibly, and it led to the genocide of thousands and thousands of people. Even John Calvin, who was a reformer in the, in the Middle Ages, who was an amazing Christian and a key thinker, whose thoughts about God still affect our theology today, this amazing man was working really hard to try and bring the kingdom of God in his city. And he was working with local lawmakers and he was trying to make it happen. And while he did a lot of good things, he ended up making some shortcuts to try and force the kingdom of God and take, make it happen his way. And it came to the point where he ended up sentencing someone to death who questioned his theology. You see how when we take shortcuts, God has called us to do someone. God, God has called us to be a people. And if we shortcut that process by making it happen in a different way, we no longer become the people who God has called us to be. And we begin operating in a manner that doesn't fit the kingdom that we are called to be a part of. So for you and me, it's so easy. When we come under pressure just like David, it's so easy to begin to rationalize why this shortcut is okay. We can find all kinds of rationalizations about why it's okay to put that couch in the back of the van. Look, I know I'm accountant, but our business is under a lot of pressure right now, so I'm just gonna move this money here just for a little bit, and then I'll move it back later, and no one's gonna know because it's gonna get us through this tough period. You do that, you're no longer becoming the person God has called you to be. In our relationships with people, we wanna give them the benefit of the doubt, we wanna take time to relate to them, we wanna hear their side of the story, but often you know if you just say that one thing, if you just get it in there, it'll probably fix it all. If I just cut down their character a little bit, if I just tell someone else about what that person did, it'll get them down to size. We make these little shortcuts and we begin to shortcut the process of who God has called us to be. And we become warlords, we drift off the path, and we no longer represent the kingdom agents God has called you and me to be. I'm just gonna invite the band out as we close. I'm going to pray, but I want you to reflect as we sing this next song. All of us will encounter pressure, whether it's simple things like driving in a car and we get angry at the person who doesn't merge quick enough, or whether it's serious things through financial pressures, emotional pressures, business pressures. We will all come under the hammer, and when we're under the hammer, that's the easiest time to rationalize little shortcuts to make our path a little bit easier. But we don't need to because we trust in a God who has the process under his control. 
He is leading and guiding each and every one of us. And I say this not because it's like, oh, God will fix it, but I say it because God has been proving himself faithful from the beginning and he will be faithful to the end. And when we trust in him to lead us and we respond in the ways that he calls us to respond to the pressures in our life, we will see him be faithful time and time again because that's who he is. God is faithful. He was faithful to David. He was faithful to Abigail. He will be faithful to you. Let's stand as we pray. Jesus, I thank you for who you are, that you are someone in whom we can have complete and utter confidence. And God, it's often really, really hard in the midst of difficulty to see you. And it's so much easier to rationalize little shortcuts that bypass your journey. Little things that we know aren't right, but we think if we just do it, it'll make things better in the end. God, it's so easy. We've done it. Would you forgive us? Would you speak to us about the fears and the insecurities that lead us to those places? And would you give us the courage to walk through the testing, not trying to shortcut the process, not trying to make it go faster, but allowing the difficulties that we face to become something by which you form us into the likeness of your son, Jesus. And give us the grace to love you and to love others in the midst of it, because it's really hard. But we know you are faithful. And so we put our trust in you.